Jane is no stranger to our show. Last year, she did a podcast with me on dyslexia and intimate relationships, and we also got to chat through our Facebook Live. Today, Jane is joining me to talk about dyslexia and trauma. This is a topic I hadn't really thought about until I started reading Jane's research and the research of Neil Alexander Passe, and also when I started to conduct my own research through my doctorate. The stories of adults with dyslexia, a pattern of trauma seemed to be emerging. This trauma started in school and was carried with them through adulthood. Jane has been working and researching in the area of dyslexia and trauma, and I'm so pleased she could spend some time with me today talking about this important topic. Thank you so much, Jane, for coming on the show again today. I'm so thrilled to be talking to you and continuing our conversation around dyslexia and mental health and well-being and our topic today on dyslexia and trauma. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Shay. Thanks for having me back again. It's great. It's um, such an interesting topic, dyslexia and trauma, because I'd never really thought about it until I started reading some research from really overseas. So Neil Alexander Passe, I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. And um, through my own research, listening to people's stories around the trauma from childhood. And so I'm really excited today to to talk to you about what that actually means and what you've learned through your work um, with your clients. So thank you again for coming on. Um, where should we start our conversation today? Do you think giving our audience a bit of a background on what trauma is? Yes, I think so. I think um, probably the best place to start is looking at trauma itself in general, because, you know, if we're talking dyslexia trauma, well, it's specific to dyslexia, but we have to understand trauma itself and what it does to the brain and, and the nervous system. Um, and I want to make reference to the people that have trained me, because really what I'm talking about today is is from so many experts in trauma, you know, mainly through the US, but across the world, so many people know so much about it. So, you know, it's not all my work, my practice might be, but I want to give reference to them. So um, Judy Lightstone from the PSI Institute in New Zealand trained me specifically over quite a number of years. Um, and I've done more courses with the National Institute for the Clinical Application of Behavioural Medicine in the US. It's nicknamed NICABM for short. And they have a, a, um, a website where, especially if you're a therapist listening today, where you can do courses on trauma, which is really great, especially in our COVID online situation. They really have doing a lot of um, interviewing with specialists like Dan Siegel and Bessel van der Kolk, uh, Pat Ogden, uh, Ruth Lanius and Alan Shaw, Peter Levine, people like that, and Dr. Stephen Porges, who I'm going to talk about his work today. So these are really important people to name. And also Dr. John Briere, who's the Professor of Psychiatry at the USC School of Medicine. And he's come a lot to New Zealand, and I've been training under him over quite a number of years. And it's sad not to have these people able to come out at the moment. But just to give reference to them and thank them, and I will talk about other research later about people that you've mentioned just before so also for those that are listening we're talking about quite a triggering topic um, and so if anything you're triggered by that Shay and I are, are talking about please just hit pause find a calming space uh, until you feel more at ease and then you can come back and listen to more uh, that's really important and what we're talking about is how to do just that today so that's probably the place I'd like to start before talking about trauma in general Thank you. And uh, is it possible to get a list of um, those professionals and experts you just named? And we can put them on the website if people want to find out more about them. Yes, especially the NICABM training, because they've got great courses coming out of there, um, especially while we can't travel. So, uh, you know, I'm really thankful to them and have, have uh, applied a lot into my psychotherapy practice. So, yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, so trauma in general, really, let's start with looking at what's going on in the brain when someone experiences trauma. And um, I'll just keep this fairly simplistic because we can get into neuroscience and I can go blah and I love it, but can get confusing, can't it? So Dr. Dan Siegel uh, really has given probably the simplest definition of trauma. And he says that it's an, it is an experience we have that overwhelms our capacity to cope. And when we talk about dyslexia trauma a little bit later, that's important to 
to, to hold in mind. So it's an experience we have that overwhelms our capacity to cope. And really trauma um, affects every part of the brain more or less. So like the front, the frontal part of the brain becomes less active. The back of the brain becomes more hyperactive. The left side shuts down more. And of course, the left is where our language centers are. And so you can start to see in a dyslexia trauma, you know, that shuts down more. So if it's hard to find the words already, it shuts down even further in trauma. And on the right side, it lights up more. So really, we're seeing that it affects the brain a lot. And the connections between different parts of the brain get messed up, basically. Um, and so the brain can become frozen in a state of paralysis, which some of these words are going to be big, you know, that I'll use, but I think they're important to use the, the, the right terminology. So that hypo activation or shutting down um, that happens or hyper activation, which is becoming more alert and, um, and, and coming up and like more anxiety. And that involves multiple brain st structures. So really trauma affects a wide you know, a, amount of the brain. And also the autonomic nervous system, which is connected to our brain. And so we, we sense and feel it in our bodies when we're in a trauma state. And having been through that myself, it's awful. And, uh, and it can be very disruptive. Uh, and knowing how to handle trauma in our system is important, therefore. So shall I just keep going, Shay? Yes. I'm sitting here for our listeners. I'm just sitting here <laughs> nodding, learning as much as our listeners right now. <laughs> Yes, please continue. <laughs> it's important to note that an experience that's traumatizing for one person might not be for another. And this is where it can be difficult in a social aspect because um, I know in times when I've had trauma triggers, I, I just feel like I come across looking crazy and that makes it even worse. And then I start shutting down and even looking more crazy, you know, and I lose my words when I feel in a trauma, when I'm in a trauma trigger and, and others might not understand it and not everybody's horrifically traumatized, you know. So if you think about it, if you're an ambulance officer and you're used to seeing car accidents, then you know what to do because that's your profession. You're used to seeing that and you know what to do with all that stimuli coming in. But if you're not in that profession and you see an accident and you stop to help, it can be traumatizing and it can overwhelm you. You don't know what to do. You feel helpless. It's life-threatening, potentially, and it's different to anything you've ever experienced before. And that overwhelms your capacity to cope and integrate the experiences. So if you think about school, if you are not dyslexic and you're a girl, particularly for girls, and you go off to school, you might love it. And you can't understand why that boy over there is so angry or playing the clown or, or not engaging in the, in the classroom. But if you're that boy who's dyslexic, it can be utterly traumatizing. You've grown up as a wee one at home and not, you know, not being forced into this reading writing situation. And all of a sudden now you're in school and it's different to anything you've really experienced and it overwhelms your capacity to cope. So of course, you know, it, it, what's traumatizing for one might not be for another. And so do you think in school there's certain situations that will create um, trauma that is lifelong? Yes, I do, specifically for dyslexic. So what I think I'll do is I'll, I'll talk about that in a separate segment because it's so specific mm -hmm. and, and come back to that. Is that okay? Yeah, no, that's fine. So, so far, what are you picking up? What are you hearing about it, trauma? Oh, I'm thinking about, well, I think it's interesting, like you use the ambulance example because I think that's what we think about, like the, the big traumas that might happen. Um, or the bigger life events that might cause trauma rather than small things that might happen to us that create trauma that you wouldn't even think about until you become an adult. Yep. So I think that um, that's an interesting example and, that, and how your brain shuts down. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting when you said that you can seem more crazy <laughs> as your brain shuts down because you can't communicate what you're trying to say and I was having a little giggle to myself because I was like oh, yeah that's what I do all the time and we've had these conversations before but I've never related it back to trauma so it's interesting that you said that as well yes and I mean there is a trauma continuum so you can have things that create anxiety or, or anxiety type uh, disorders like you, you know something goes really wrong with your job or Something goes really wrong at home and you can be very anxious about it, but it may not cause trauma. 
but then you can have say one thing happen like quite you know a car accident and it might not have to be severe to give you a fright enough and overwhelm your capacity to cope for it just to, to give you a trauma reaction and then it can go on into you know a personalized trauma where somebody actually inter, interpersonal trauma we call it where someone hurts you or abuses you and and these things on the continuum start to get more traumatizing or worse if you like and then you could have multiple incidences of what we call non-interpersonal trauma, like here in, in New Zealand, the Christchurch earthquake some years ago, and people are still recovering from that. And then you can have multiple incidences of interpersonal trauma where childhood neglect and abuse and lack of attachment and, and add dyslexia or learning issues into the mix, and it becomes more towards the complex end. So it is on a continuum, and it's important to know that. So someone can be severely traumatised with complex trauma, and be having trauma responses, and someone could have had one car accident and have trauma responses. That um, that means that someone could have a lot of, like if you think of all the different life events you go through, yeah. does that mean that everyone has a little bit of trauma in them, do you think? Well, look, I, I think we probably all have a bit, don't we, because we live in this world and we have imperfect parents often, and some people might say, no, I don't, but, you know, um, <laughs> We all make mistakes. We're human. There's shame. There's, you know, and I, you know, not everything is traumatizing though. And we can't say everybody has PTSD off one traumatic event. Probably not. John Breer might say not, you know, but, but when we're getting up into repetitive things that are happening or awful developmental betrayal from parents, like sexual abuse, then we're seeing complex trauma situations most likely. So with trauma, the brain, for the brain to cope, it needs to take in stimuli that's coming in. So it's got to allow for, for what it sees, what it's hearing, the smell, the taste, the touch, and the body. And all of this energy uh, flows through the nervous system, which has to do something with it. Uh, and so when we're thinking about stimuli coming in, again, without going yet into the dyslexia side, you know, that's taking processing. And the brain's got to process that stimuli that's coming in. And it can be very difficult to do in a traumatic situation. And as well, there's a hormonal response to trauma. So without having slides to show listeners, so it makes it a little different, but they can Google these different words. The limbic part of our brain, which is what some people call the feeling part of the brain, um, within that is something called the amygdala. And the amygdala is the center for identifying danger. And when triggered, it alerts us and it gets us ready for flight or f- fight or flight. You've probably heard of those terms. Um, That's one part of the brain. There's another part of the brain called the hippocampus. And that reaches from the limbic brain or the feeling brain up into the thinking brain or the neocortex. And its job is to record memory in time and space. And so it sequences memory. It gives it a beginning, a middle and an end. So, for instance, if I say to you, what did you have for breakfast this morning? And do you know what time? What would you tell me? I would tell you it was um, a banana (laughs) at probably half past eight. (laughs) So your hippocampus would have recorded that and probably what it tasted like and (laughs) felt like and what time it happened. You see in trauma, what happens is, is depending on what sort of trauma we're going through and how severe, the hippocampus tends to switch off. And this is where it doesn't record what's happening in time and space. So if you can imagine you're walking around the corner, let's say we're, we're in Australia, we're walking around the corner and suddenly you see an Australian brown snake sitting right in front of you on the path. You can't get to the left and you can't get to the right to get away from it. You might reach out for a stick, stick that's on the ground and try and beat the thing over the head to kill it, which is going into a fight re- response. You might turn around and run the other way, which is going into a flight response. Basically what happens is the the uh, the brain releases stress hormones at that point that you see that Australian brown, I think that's what you call it, the brown snake, mm-hmm. and it releases cortisol. And it's and that's what we need to mobilise our body. At the same time, uh, from the kidneys, they release adrenaline. And we need those hormones, you know, we're in danger. And so the cortisol tends to shut that hippocampus off um, if we're very, very frightened and our higher mind might shut down, particularly if we can't get away from that snake. And we might go into a freeze response of the snake coming at us and we can't go anywhere and we're in that freeze paralysis. 
Adrenaline also increases the way our amygdala functions and can increase the laying down of certain memories, particularly trauma memories. So these hormones are playing a big part in our brain and in our, in our nervous system response, aren't they? So the body sends us into fight or flight. That's the sympathetic nervous system activation and you're ready to defend yourself. It's, it's lightning fast. It's a, what we call a bottom up response from the primitive brain. Or we might not be able to get away from that snake. And so we go into a freeze response like animals do where they feign death. And that's a parasympathetic nervous system activation. And in the freeze response, the hippocampus switches offline and you actually can't move. Your muscles are frozen. And if you think about that, if it's not enough for a predator to move away at that point, you can shut down completely. Your heart rate will drop, respiratory rate drops, and people can even stop breathing. And it, they can go into a state of no fear, no pain. So, you know, trauma has all these really uh, big um, effects on our system and our brain. I'm glad you mentioned the, um, the freeze response as well, because so, for so long we've heard, we've talked about the fight and flight response. And it, I feel like it's only recently we started talking about the freeze and the impact that can have on us as well. It's very hard. I mean, it's like um, once upon a time I had um, a, a fright on the motorway where someone pulled into my lane and, and just about hit me at high speed. And I've had something like that as a child before and, and being very frightened. And after that event, it encoded in my brain um, that every car next to me on the motorway is going to come across into my lane, you know. Um, so it's basically like that hippocampus that's recording memory. Uh, and there's a lot more detail I could say about that hippocampus, but I won't here. But it's, it's recording that memory in time and space but you see if you've been shocked and you've gone into that freeze response which I did when I was a child when it happened the hippocampus switches off you're just in limbic system danger reaction you're frozen and it doesn't record what you know that what the time and space is like so um, for instance you've walked around the corner you see that brown snake you've had a freeze response you've stood there absolutely terrified the snake didn't come towards you, it slithered off and you're going, <sighs> and you're just trying to calm down off of that awful trauma, you know, uh, experience. A few days go by, there's no brown snake there now, but you happen to walk back around the path at that junction, you know, where you saw the snake the first time and everything in your brain and body is just going again as if that brown snake is there. There's no recording of that was on a Tuesday morning. It's happening again. And so it's called re-experiencing. So like for me on the motorway, I still struggle with this where I'm driving and I, and I have that trauma trigger where I feel like I'm re-experiencing that car coming at me again. My brain and memory doesn't say that was a year ago. It's just as if it's happening now. And in trauma, that's really important to understand. So is there, if we um, build resilience from a young age, does it mean that events can be less traumatic? Like, is there any way that we can buffer or protect ourselves so that, because like we were saying before, that there's lots of things in life that could create trauma. It doesn't have to be a huge national event. It could be anything. But are there ways that we can um, help to buffer that so things aren't as traumatic? I think Does that so. makes sense? Yes, it does. I think, say, a child has been... Um, has something happened to them and they've come home and they've been given the comfort that they've needed and they've been able to calm down from that trigger, from that trauma, then they've been able to have the help to work through the body memory, which is re-experiencing that brown snake again, even though it's not there. And if they have the help to realise and learn to tell themselves it's not there, it's not happening now, which is part of trauma recovery, and to build resilience around handling the feelings and the sensations and learning to calm them, I think that you do build resilience. You know, essentially ambulance drivers on their first call might have to do just that. Mm. Um, so, yes, and that's part of trauma recovery. But I think if a child's been very traumatised, parents need to get in there very quickly and start working with that trauma to start to process it through. Because it resides in the body, you know, it's there. I still know trauma I've been through still tends to sit there. It sits at a cellular level. But I do believe we can heal and recover and, yes, become more resilient. 
So this is going to be going off topic completely for our <laughs> listeners. But so do you think um, then that's part of that genetic passing down of intergenerational trauma because it is at that cellular level and so it is passed down through the generations. So you, even though there's no reason that you should be scared of a spider, for an example, that's a bad example, but, you know, um, but for some reason you're innately fearful of something and there's absolutely no reason because you've never experienced it, you've never had a conversation about it, you've never seen it, but for some reason you're innately an um, anxious or react to something. Yeah, I wondered if you'd ask about epigenetics. <laughs> I don't want to go off too much off track. We <laughs> haven't got to dyslexia yet and I've got a lot of questions about that. But it yes. does interest me because I was reading about um, uh, complete off topic, but uh, women in society and the trauma that women have faced throughout the centuries and how that is passed down through the generations. Yes, um, there is such a thing and the, and the experts do talk about it and the epigenetic side of it and what that means. But I think if you think about cortisol going up, you know, with the trauma result, trauma trigger and the hormonal side and adrenaline coming up, that's in the mother's body. And I don't want to mother shame here because I think we've got to be very careful because the world might like to do that, just like you're saying about the fem feminine line. But yes, it is, it can, it can be passed down. I believe my father's trauma probably was passed through to me, maybe more behaviour, but my mother's as well, without going into what that was. But yes, and I think the more alert your system is on, is, is up in, the more the fetus or the baby, sorry, is going to feel it uh, and, and encode that too. So we could go more deeply into that maybe, uh, I don't know, another time. After, after I've had my baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't start worrying about it. Lots of meditating. Lots of meditating, yes. But yes, that is a thing. That is definitely a thing. I wonder if people listening, and maybe Shay yourself, if you've got a pen and paper in front of you. Okay, I've got a texture. Is that okay? Yeah, great. paper? Okay. Does so, it need to be big? Nope. So everybody who's, yep, who's listening is to, from the bottom of your page up to the top, in terms of a vertical line, just put some, some, some numbers from minus two going up to minus one to zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And if, if we were on a video, I'd have it on there, but I think this is great for, for listeners to, to make a note. So we've got minus two numbers all the way up to, to ten. And then across in a horizontal line, draw a big line across at naught, right across that page, naught, zero. Through the zero or under or above or it doesn't matter? It doesn't matter, just up to it. Okay, oh, up to it, yep. Okay, and then draw the same nice thick line across at eight, right? Yep. How's that look? Okay, and uh, hopefully it, it looks a bit just... <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit um, badly spaced. <laughs> that's good. That's good. And hopefully listeners are doing the same. And what you have drawn now is something we call the window of optimal activation or the, the, the trauma window. And basically, if uh, you, you can write this down or not or do it later, but anything zero and below is what we call hypo activation. Hypo meaning coming down. And anything eight or above is hyper activation which is going up. So you've got the hypo and the hyper. And with trauma, we can go up and down. And so when, you know, I was saying before about the limbic brain, we see the brown snake, the amygdala alerts us, it goes into danger, fight, flight. We could get to a point where we're trapped now and we can't get away from that snake. And, and, and before that, the snake, we, you know, we're flustered and we're anxious and we're worried and we're trying to get away. And you know, we're now we're really frightened and it's terrifying and it's horrifying and oh no, I can't breathe and I'm gonna panic. You know, that's a hypo, hyper sorry, activation. Now, if we get going up, 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 up on that window and we get to eight or above, at that point, that's when we become so activated that the hippocampus switches off we're no longer taking in the memory of the situation and the time and space and we're offline think about it as the brain the neocortex the thinking brain going offline we are in this absolute flight response flight fight terrified that's when a panic attack will happen at eight or above and you can feel yourself becoming hyperactivated those of you listening will know if you have trauma will know what i mean 
and we become paranoid or we get somatic symptoms, we get headaches, we, we have a sore back, we start to freak out, we get panic attacks, we have nightmares, get agitated, start yelling at someone. If we start to, let's say we're trapped by that brown snake and we literally cannot get away and we start to go into a freeze response, the actual freeze response happens at zero below. At that point, the hippocampus turns off, the parasympathetic nervous system switches on and we shut down like a possum in the headlights, we call it here. <laughs> and we, we are not thinking, we're not rational. You can't go up to someone in a hypo or hyperactivated state and say to them, oh, calm down, it's going to be okay. Because they can't hear you. They can't understand what you're saying. They can't think. They're in such a heightened or hyper, hypo response that, that they're not functioning. And you see that window is super important to understand, isn't it? We can't recover our trauma outside of zero and eight. We can only recover it when the brain has enough capacity to stay online, which I'll talk about next uh, after the dyslexia component, um, to be able to mentalize what's happening. So like on the motorway, once I had a terrible trigger and I'm so thankful I bought a car that has radar and I could turn the front radar and the side radars on because you can't get off the motorway when you're in the middle of it in a fast moving traffic, that the car would stay in the lane before I could get off the road having a really enormous trauma trigger from this, this person pulling in front of me. So, you know, that's coming in and out of that window. So, you know, there's no way you can drive a car when you're out of the window. I think that's really helpful for here uh, listeners to, to have in front of them. Yeah, I think it's really helpful. I'm learning so much. <laughs> I think if we do another podcast, I'll make sure I bring my uh, notepad and pen. But it's interesting that, you know, below zero and above eight, how your brain... Either, either way, it will stop working. Yes. And it's how do we, are there ways that we can manage to stay in that one to seven so we're able to um, function? Yes, and I'm going to talk about that shortly. So I think one of the most powerful aspects of trauma that Dr. Bessel van der Kolk talks about is inescapability. And a sim more simpler word is trappedness. You know, to be trapped. When you think about, I'll talk about dyslexia, trauma and trapness, say, in the classroom in a minute, but it's the inability to change things. It's that feeling of paralysis. It's a feeling of total helplessness. So for me, I get the trauma trigger on the motorway because I can't get out of there. I'm in the two lanes. I'm trying to get home and I can't get out of there. Can't just pull off the road. So it, re you know, it tends to, to trigger up old trap feelings. And so, you know, there are, there are ways to work with that, which I do, but you know, that trapness is super important to, to note. And the more danger a person is, the more responsive their amygdala will become. And so it will signal danger whether it's real or not eventually. So traumatic experiences are stored in the brain as sensations, that's important to note, and impulses. And really, when we've been traumatized, we're dealing with the effects of what happened, not the thing that happened itself. So these, these experiences are not remembered, really. They're re-experienced as if they're happening now with that loss of the hippocampal time and the context. And when triggered, our body reacts instantly. And um, we, really, we can't think and regulate and, and can't process. So if, it, if we're above eight or below zero and we can't remember, when you get a, trigger, a trauma trigger, is your brain creating something? Like because you can't because your mind's blocked out the event as such, is it your brain trying to draw on different parts of your brain to remember what happened? Does that make sense? I, like I is there, or is it just a natural reaction that your body just automatically reacts even though your brain can't remember it? Yeah, it's automatic reacting. It's like it's encoded into the body, you know, and the body remembers, you know, and so really. It's not a it's it's not sort of a language based or cognitive thing, you know. It's it's a sensation, body, brain, nervous system response, and that's why those of us who've had trauma feel like we cr look crazy, because you can start shutting in, you can you, you want to run away, you go into flight, you know, and people start fighting or freezing. It's really hard. So yeah, it's it's encoded. It's like laid down within the body memory. So trauma can lead to dissociation, which is like shutting down or leaving emotionally or depersonalizing or amnesia. You know, for, you, don't, you don't remember the thing at all. 
which can become traumatizing in itself because when you're in dissociation, you can't rely on your experiences and it's a horrible feeling or, or triggering in itself. Uh, trauma can lead to reenactments against self and others. Abuse, domestic violence is often coming from trauma and self-harm. And somatic symptoms and illnesses, which is very important to note. And it can lead to anxiety and panic attacks and phobias and depression and substance abuse. And also personality disorders and eating disorders and self-hatred and narcissism. So trauma can have far-reaching effects into mental health, can't it? It's a long list. And so those fight or, I'm about to go into the dyslexia trauma side, but those fight or flight or freeze impulses, and this is super important for listeners to understand, they remain in the body, especially with repeated trauma. But what's important to know is they want to resolve, they want to heal. We, you know, our bodies are amazing uh, agents for healing. And so a person may be stuck, say, in a raging state, a rageful state, or in a terrified state, and they could react to any environmental trigger that's similar to the past trauma. So it could be the, similar, the past trauma was the snake, and then they might be sitting in a cafe having coffee and someone might move their foot and they freak out because they think it's a snake crawling along the ground. Okay, These, those never completed actions, you know, of that freeze, flight and fight, uh, might persist in that body in the body and, and they might be in distorted forms like chronic muscle tightness or aggressive impulses or wanting to run away and to resolve the trauma the person needs to find safe ways to move those states into a resolution through the body it's not through words words aren't enough it's through the body the goal of the goal really of trauma healing is integration it's to link those differentiated parts of the brain back with the body and our social world and, um, you know, in, in impaired integration or trauma, the person lacks emotional balance. They, they lack their cognitive facilities or, you know, when they're in, in that trigger, they have difficulty with relationships. They have debilitating trauma symptoms. They're often rigid or chaotic, depending how severe the trauma has been. That was great. Thank you. I feel like I'm yeah. back at uni. It's good because it really <laughs> makes, <laughs> makes you think so much more broadly than those big events or a one-off event that can create trauma, that there's so many other ways yes. that it can be created. And I think, I don't know if we really talk about yes, it very often because it's going no. to be big things that happen in your life rather than it could be anything that could create trauma. That's right. You. And without, without begging something like cognitive behavioural therapy, of which I have done training in, it's not enough to deal with trauma. When you're talking cognitive therapy, which is the, the evidence-based acceptable therapy in the medical model anyway, which I'll, I, don't, you know, I don't agree with, you're not going to heal trauma through cognitive um, reframing. It's, it's an emotional response. It's down into the body and sensations. And besides, the brain, you know, and someone who's traumatised, they might be saying, oh, I'm fine, I feel fine. You know, I, th I, think I think I'm handling this all right. And their whole body's like this. And they're talking to you like, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. And they're on edge, you know. And you can see that it's incongruent. So really we need to be working at that body and emotional and sensation level. Yeah. So with dyslexia trauma... I feel like it's important to tell a couple of stories, but first of all, again, to get a bit academic, is to talk about the research. And there's not a lot of research. There really isn't. And I went and did another search for this talk. I think McNulty, and I think you would have read about McNulty in your PhD work, um, uh, he, he said that children become aware of their learning difficulties at a very young age and they begin to feel different or if something is wrong with me. And we can see the beginnings of shame, like I've talked about before starting to come in there and that intensifies through the school years as they have difficulty so really we're seeing children go say to kindergarten starting to become aware that they're different as some other writers Thompson um, in a book by Nicholson and Dimmock said that stress is a part of everyday life but it becomes threatening which is the point about trauma when it's pervasive and invasive and we don't have strategies to cope with it so many dyslexic children um, develop inappropriate strategies to high stress levels like becoming disruptive and aggressive and withdrawn or school phobic and you can start to see at a young age they're starting to really feel that you know that they're getting traumatized at school 
Alexander Parse's done great research in terms of PTSD, hasn't he? And he says many dyslexics suffer from PTSD from adverse schooling. And he also says um, children, you know, first, well, in children with, who are dyslexic, the first trauma can take place in that they see their peers understanding and learning and they're unable to. And then the second and longer trauma, he said, is the ongoing effect of their inability to learn like their peers. And, and this will be from quite a young age. He also says trauma at school is a common experience for young dyslexics. And, and, it, and you know, it said that this is both distressing and occurs continuously over a 10-year school career. So look at the extent of that from his research that he found. Um, he also said PTSD and dyslexics can come from various factors like suddenly being excluded from their peer group, intense anger from a teacher or a parent, physical bullying at school, their realisation that um, something is wrong, that they're not normal, you know, inverted commas, or they're not learning normally, and being called stupid and lazy. And as well, he found that unrecognised, un no, it was Scott who found this, unrecognised, undiagnosed dyslexic parents can, can actually project that onto their children, the horror and terror from school that their child might face it. And so that's another thing. So those are some of the researchers who've been looking into dyslexia trauma. And, you know, it's interesting, my own son, when he was at school, and he would have been in New Zealand year five in a year six, five, six class because we tend to blend them. And he was, um, this, this is what started my um, formulating my model called Drawing Talk, actually, when I had to work with him through this. And I don't know if I've shared it on the last podcast, but he was hiding down the end of our house, um, crying under a desk as far away from the front door as he could get one morning. And I couldn't find him. So I went looking and I found him there and he was shaking in terror. And I'm like, what's happened? And he couldn't tell me, of course, because with trauma, you're shut down, you can't find the words. Eventually, I asked him to draw it for me. And what had happened is he was in school. Uh, the year sixes were doing a test. The year fives were drawing pictures. He drew a lovely picture. He's very artistic my dyslexic son, and he turned around to show it, he wasn't saying anything, to show it to his friend behind him. The teacher came along and slapped his hand hard down into the desk. He actually jumped out of his seat and tried to get out of the classroom. He said on his drawing how he was trying to come and get mummy. And the teacher yelled at him and told him to stay. And he was hugely angry and frightened. Um, that traumatised him. He couldn't get to me. He was terrified of his teacher's anger. He'd just been hit. And uh, he hadn't really done anything, you know. And so, you know, he went on to feel traumatised through school from that event. And, um, and it, it stayed with him. So an event like that, and you can see the trapness and not being able to get away and this awful thing happening, you can see where that's going to lead to, let alone learning issues, which, you know, is part of it as well. And my ex-husband himself too tells the story of um, being in the school classroom years ago um, before dyslexia was recognised in New Zealand. Uh, his teacher made him write his name on the paper that he was writing on and he wrote it with the letters mixed up. And she came along and held him up, held the paper up with him at the front of the class and shamed him in front of the class for mixing his letters up. And to this day, he'll say that was traumatising for him. And Bob, someone in my research also, he says, uh, he, when I was researching his story, he, he said this, and I'll read it to you. He said, school was somewhere to eat my lunch. I stayed quiet and no one cared. Over my 40 years, I buried all my feelings. I isolated myself because then you can't get hurt anymore. You can't get disknowledged. That was his word. When you're just being ignored and left and rejected for so long, you isolate yourself so you just don't have any more there. It's your wall. You just bury your feelings so you can't get hurt anymore. And he'd never uttered a tear, and he burst into tears as he said that story to me. Uh, and he had horrendous trauma through school and never passed school. Uh, and yet, you know, today he, he's doing so fabulously well. So... These are the things that I think go on with trauma re regarding dyslexia. 
So, you know, if you think about it, Shay, what else do you think would cause dyslexia, uh, trauma, sorry, if you're dyslexic? In the, in the early, in the informative years? Yeah, at school maybe. Yes. Wow, I'm reflecting on my own experience. I've been petrified of having to do any public speaking. And people wouldn't think that because I do a lot of it and the podcasts and doing Facebook lives and things like that absolutely terrified me. Mm -hmm. This is probably the first year where I've actually felt comfortable in my skin doing podcasts and this is our fifth year of doing them. And I think um, reading aloud, having Mm -hmm. to read aloud, writing on a whiteboard at work can be traumatising, anxiety-provoking, being asked a question and being worried you won't know the answer to it because you might not have understood the context of what's been explained to you or you've just been, it's taken you a while to process the information and so you get anxious or worried that you're not going to be able to give the right answer. I remember at uni I wouldn't go to a class. I missed a whole semester of one subject uh, because we had to, the lecturer would randomly pick people to read out of the journal or we had to um, talk about a journal we'd read and they'd randomly pick, so I just wouldn't go because I was just so fearful um, of what happened at school and that that was going to happen at uni. And I already knew I was different, even though I didn't know I was dyslexic at the time. I knew I wasn't Mm. like everyone else. So Mm. I think that those things, yeah, absolutely. And, of course, if they involve terror and horror, and it's so traumatizing, so suffocating, so much that your brain can't deal with it, and it overwhelms your capacity to cope, that's when trauma can start to be laid down, particularly if you can't get away and you're trapped. I think even with public speaking, I used to say that I felt like it was out-of-body experience. Yeah, there it so is. It's just, yeah, and, and now, it, now it makes sense talking to you today why it felt like an out-of-body experience because that's it was right. just... Um, terrifying to have to do that's right one of the symptoms of trauma or one of the aspects is terror and horror and I actually think it's probably with most traumas that you've got this aspect of terror and horror which leads to you know that that dissociating uh, or heightened anxiety towards panic attacks so yeah and also like you know I was thinking myself too much incoming information if you know if you're dyslexic you have a slow processing and a slow working memory you know, but, you know, in terms of the, that's generalising, but in terms of the um, diagnostic side, um, you know, and it's just too much to process and it shuts, your brain shuts down um, because you, and if you can't keep up with someone else and someone's going to shame you, that would make sense. Or if you can't find the words and someone's looking at you, rolling their eyes um, or judging you or rejecting you, you know, all of this is huge, isn't it? And, um, you know, tra- trapped again with someone angry, or too much shame and then you you split off between parts of yourself into good and bad which is is something that happens especially with early childhood trauma and you think about it a child can't go to the shop and buy alcohol right to ease their feelings and numb their pain and so they shut down their bodies and shut down their feelings um, and then can't tell if something is uh, dangerous is happening either got that side to it you can end up with this good bad split between good girl boy, bad girl boy, good teacher, bad teacher, good parent, bad parent, and that those sorts of things that happen within their psyche. Yeah. So is that say say the example of um, having to do a presentation and being terrified? So like I've always linked it back to school, but I'd never really thought of it as a trauma. Is that reaction because of a trauma? Do you think? I think, you know, we've, again, that continuum, it can cause heightened anxiety. But if, if it is the amygdala is going and the person is very frightened and they want to fight or flight and, or they freeze, that's what we see, especially in the freeze, that, that trauma codes into the body and, and becomes embedded in, in the nervous system and the brain. So not everything around dyslexic experience is going to be traumatising, but sometimes it can be about the you know from the things that we've mentioned mm-hmm. and if you're having a depersonalization like you described you know an out-of-body experience that's a traumatic response that's a trauma symptom 
listeners need to know not everything is trauma and that's important and what we're trying to do is differentiate it and and decipher what's trauma and that's what sent me into my research I wanted to know what was trauma what was dyslexia you know and 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 what was going on so it's not not everything a dyslexic person struggling in school with is going to lead to trauma but we do need to know when it has because this is the problem we need to know what to do about it and like I've said before from my research, what I found was people, my participants with dyslexia struggled to name their feelings. And I've shared the cycles with you before, I think. And they've struggled to name their feelings and they've struggled to know what they are and they struggle to regulate them. And that wasn't always from trauma because the other study I did said that they felt like that with, with excitement and joy and fun as well. So it's not all trauma. But at least we, if we know a bit about trauma, we can start to figure out what's going on. And if there is extensive or general trauma and someone isn't coping, get help and get it with a, a trauma you know, therapist who specialises in trauma. So is there a way for particularly parents are listening to this? Uh, well, there's two questions. Uh, one I think you've just answered, but I'll ask it anyway. For parents for, and their children, and uh, we know that the school systems around the world um, uh, improving immensely, but there's still a lot of work to be done, particularly in Australia. How can we support our dyslexic children um, to reduce the impact of those situations so that they don't become traumatic events for them? Is there a way that we can try to minimise or uh, reduce the risk for them in a long-winded way? <laughs> Question. So I think awareness and knowing about dyslexia and then checking out, say, in the school system so that you're advocating for your child, so that the parent's very involved. And if they see something really not going right, like what happened with my son, deal with it. I think that attunement and attachment behaviours are vital. And when I did my talking to Amutu here, I was talking about attunement. And attunement is really being able to gauge what's going on with your child, to, to notice that they're off, to notice they're feeling something, to notice they're upset even notice that they're happy and to to talk to them about that and attachment you know to work with a secure attachment um, and to be there for them and they need a safe place to come home to they need someone to talk to and they need to feel like you understand them and to keep the channels of communication open so that children feel safe to to say to parents what's happening to them and that the parent isn't going to be angry and and going off at them themselves and creating further issues. And that, you know, and often a parent themselves might be dyslexic if there's a dyslexic child, and that parent then might have unresolved issues from their childhood, especially this day and age with people my age who, like my ex, went through what he did. So I think, you know, attuning and attachment and awareness and advocacy and being safe and having a safe home environment is all vitally important and for the child to be able to talk and communicate in a way that works for them. And that's why I created Drawing Talk, which um, helps parents and children talk a bit better when dyslexia is around. And so if it's gone, if something's happened and it's become a traumatic event, what are the best steps for a parent to address it while they're young rather than letting it manifest until you become an adult and you're still trying to deal with it with, as an adult then when you can access the alcohol? Yes. And the That's other, right. the other, um, yes. other things that you can do. <laughs> right. Well, I think first of all, um, we can't heal trauma if we're living in trauma. So, whatever's causing that trauma needs to be addressed. Right. So, in the instance of my son, we went and complained to the school about the teacher. That teacher was sacked, actually. Um, and I don't know if I would imagine she's teaching again now. But um, we we were not going to put up with that. And then it's about helping the child to regulate and work through, which I'm going to talk about next, the trauma reaction. And to teach them about trauma, I have children come in and we talk about trauma and what it is and certainly affected our son. So where did I leave off there? Um, I think it's important to to buffer children, to really help them um, not be in a traumatised situation, to deal with anything that is happening, like bullying or um, that, to talk through about what happens with dyslexia and how hard it can be you know normalizing these things having the awareness giving the support and research says that dyslexics need support right across the lifespan meaning well into adulthood and so you know and it's not all straightforward is it many families are struggling 
So, um, and then where it's, you know, where there's trauma that's causing depression or major symptoms, you know, really the therapeutic um, environment's important for children. Find a good child psychotherapist who knows how to deal with trauma. The other question I was going to have was what do we, how do we support adults? Because with my research, a lot of adults spoke about trauma um, from school and those early years. So um, it's, yeah, how do we support adults in even just recognising um, that it could be trauma because even like as we've spoken today and I said to you, I would never really thought about trauma in this sense until I started doing this research. What are some strategies for adults as well? So really, again, if you recognise um, trauma and again noticing that you can become anxious from learning in school and it might not be that you're traumatised because I know some dyslexic people and people with ADHD and other learning issues that are not traumatised um, to that extent. But if you are, it's really important to see somebody who specialises in trauma because really you need the strategies um, to be able to deal with it. And it, it, it affects, like I've said, the brain and the body. And so it's, it's huge, you know. Um, I've had to do that myself and I know what that's like. So really when we're looking at how to treat it, the most important first thing, and Pat Ogden is a fantastic psychotherapist who trains people in this, but the relationship is vital. We can't heal trauma just on our own. We need relationship. You know, we're born in relationship. Your little one's going to come and be born into this world in relationship with you and your partner. We're wounded in relationship, say with teachers parents you know others friends and so we heal in relationship we're relational beings and we need each other so relationships vital I I would not have healed trauma in my life without that and I can see with my clients that they really need that and that needs to be um, very uh, secure and so without without relationship you can't elicit what's called the social engagement system, which is one of the things that we need to heal trauma and we can't heal much without it. So if you are someone who's an introvert and you have trauma, please don't stay isolated, get help. So when you say relationships, so in that exercise, I was just about to say, what if it's someone that doesn't have um, a good social support, then are you saying that um, even just having shouldn't say even just, but by having um, someone like a psychologist, that in itself is a relationship that can help you to heal? Yes, so long as they understand trauma. Yeah, or a counsellor or someone, an expert in it. Yeah, and dyslexia, because plenty don't understand dyslexia and then they think that your anxiety is caused by, I don't know, something else, and that's no good. And yes, it could be even close friends or family. If, you know, I get husbands, wives and partners in to understand what's going on with someone who's traumatised so that they can work with these strategies I'm going to share. So really, when you've got that relationship, then you can start to access the dysregulation in in your body. And the key here for everyone listening is that you build a sensory awareness, which can be, I mean, a dyslexic person, they've got it all happening in their body, but they just can't necessarily name it. They find it hard to name these sensations. And, you know, so really I work with someone with dyslexia to name the things that are happening in the body and then try if they're feelings to put words to them. And I ask questions like, what's happening in your body right now? I notice that you're, you've gone all tight into your body and you're closing in. What's that like for you? What, what, what's the sensation needing to do? Is it needing to go somewhere? You know, and then, and then they might move and I'll go, now what's happening? So working at a body level specifically. And it's really important for for um, being able to, which I'll talk about soon, to, to move that or sequence, we call it that trauma through the body. So an example is, is um, when I was doing one of my trauma trainings years ago uh, here in, in Auckland, um, and the person training us decided that they would put us into a bit of a trauma state by imagining, and I think there might have been a man in the room, that we were being stalked and, um, and then teach us the fight flight response or the freeze response is what to do to actually move it and in the body movement to, to maybe if we're frozen to move it into a fight or if we're frozen to move into flight which moves moves the sensation through and of course she didn't know that I've actually been through that personally in my life as a young woman so I was actually triggered and traumatized in that training and I had my hands on the back of a chair with the stalking thing going on and I was terrified you know and me being me I hadn't probably told her about it 
And so I stood there and everything in me just want, didn't want to move. And, I, and there was another lady there who's a very Christian lady with her workmates. And, and I'll tell you what she did, but it was so funny. So we're standing there and in the end, I, I decided I was going to, for the first time, let the trauma that I hadn't processed from that situation move through my body. And I just grabbed hold of this chair and I threw it, blew it across the room, yelling. And, uh, and I could feel the trauma trappedness shift through my body at that moment. And I could feel that I wanted to cry. And it was a beautiful experience. And, and that's really what has to happen. And, and this other lady who's very religious starts swearing and screaming and swearing. It was so funny. So both of us went into a fight response, if you like, trying to move that freeze response that our bodies were in. You know, and it's like rage, you know, making the motion, like hitting the pillow. But back in the 60s, it was all the rage to get your rage out and just thump the pillow, thump the pillow, thump the pillow in therapy. However, that's not going to heal trauma because you can just be out of the window thumping the pillow and nothing's coming back into that window that you've drawn in front of you. You know, so we've got to be able to feel and sense the sensations while reporting them saying what's happening, saying what it's feeling like, keeping that cognitive brain online while we go through feeling some of those sensations. And this takes a long, slow time with deeply traumatised people. So that so way just thumping the pillow and not saying anything won't do anything. Right. Got yep. to, because we've got to bring integration. The thinking brain and the feeling brain need to start to integrate and integrate in that frontal cortex as well, which is where we regulate emotion. And learning and practicing mindfulness, if you haven't done a course on that, I know it's the rave. However, it's very, very good. It engages the, the observing part of the brain, it, you know, which is looking at things. And so you can notice what's happening to you and feel it, but not become one with it. And, and even a caution about mindfulness. When I did mindfulness training and I hadn't yet fully, well, I don't know, fully, fully heal your trauma, but I hadn't done the trauma processing and they put you into a body mindfulness, that can be very triggering. So be very careful if you have trauma to do these sorts of practices slowly and gently. So really, um, you know, you can only recover trauma in that window that you've drawn between sort of zero eight. If you're offline, you, you can't process it. You can be too hyper or hyperactivated back re-experiencing. And so you first need to calm that down back into the window and bring the brain back online and calm your nervous system down and keep that social engagement system online with your support person so that, that, that you're not alone in your terror and horror. And, and, you know, telling our stories is very healing. There's something healing and being heard and seen and understood, isn't there, especially secrets. So we need to verbalise. Um, the last podcast we did, we, I was talking about um, finding it difficult to name feelings and communicate them as a dyslexic. But actually, we don't need words when we're working with the body. The body remembers what happened. So the words are important, the story is important, but so is the somatic story in the body. So we need to listen to and work with our bodies. And we need to feel that sensation and talk about it or be able to think about it for that to integrate. And gently and slowly and surely being able to work through those, those traumas can happen. Because essentially with trauma, we're going, I don't want to feel it, I don't want to feel it, and, and we're shutting down. But the more you can notice it and feel it and talk about it and report it and think about it, the better. Hmm. My brain's thinking at a million miles an hour <laughs> about what we've just talked about. I think it's been such a, a valuable session for people because it, unless we start talking about it, people can't link it. No. And people may not realise that what they're going through could be, may not be, but for some it could be past trauma, particularly for adults, and that being able to recognise that it, it could be a trauma and then trying to get support if it's impacting your life I think is so important. And there just there's been, there hasn't been enough until now to show us that, that the trauma could be linked with dyslexia. And I think that um, it's such an important topic to be talking about and to be shining a light on for people to think is this something that's actually been happening to me and that I can get help for it and it can improve and um, yeah. things can so get better. Perhaps we should finish on on one very practical way of 
quickly dealing with a trauma response out of the window. Would that be helpful to finish on that briefly? I think that would be great because I've learned so much and I want to keep learning. (laughs) Dr. Stephen Porges, who I mentioned in the beginning, has created uh, or discovered polyvagal theory in practice, he calls it. And and I'll keep it simple. But the, the social engagement system I talked about there's a vagus that a human, they call it the human vagus, and it's a vagal nerve that runs from the, just under the breastbone up. It doesn't operate further down, it operates. And um, it helps to bring our social engagement system online and it enables self-soothing. And what it does is it inhibits the extremes of fight-flight and it inhibits dissociation or immobilization. And it connects the, the back of our brain to the organs above the diaphragm or the heart and lungs to the neck and the throat, and to the face, which we need, if you think about it, for social engagement, all of those things. And your human infants depend on that hugely to stay alive, don't they? It's underdeveloped, that human vagus is underdeveloped in survivors of chronic developmental trauma, and that's important to know. So Dr. Paul just says this, basically, I'll keep it very simple. You're going to um, get that human vagus operating. The more traumatized you are, the less operating it will be, but you can build it like a muscle. And so we stay with our relationship person, um, with our social engagement. You know, we're we're in the same zone as them. And breathing, when you think about the importance of breathing in trauma, that operates the diaphragm. So breathing in lungs and brings the heart rate down is key for managing a trauma response. So to, to get diaphragm breathing going or nostril breathing, you've got a list of my strategies for that, I think, if anyone wants it. And square breathing. These, are, these things start to get that vagus going. As well, if you're in a trauma response below zero, zero below or eight or above, just get the person to move their head, to look up and maybe look at the clouds or to look around the room we'll start to bring that vagus online to look around and say, what do you see? Um, I did that with a client earlier um, this week where I was saying, who was having a dissociative moment, what do you see outside of the window? I said, I see green, I see sky, I see birds. How many do you see? Brings that uh, neocortex back on. As well, you can get them to use their eyes, to move their eyes up and down and around. Or to listen with the ears, it brings the human vagus on, to listen to you talking, to put music on, to speak on the phone, and to use their voice to talk to you and say what's happening, to scream or to sing, and especially to move the body, to stand up if they're able to, to walk around the room, things like qigong techniques, or walking in bare feet outside, or stretching, or pushing against the wall, all helps the body move from a trap freeze response into you know moving that trauma through the body so those are a couple of very simple practices that anyone can do breathing move your head use your eyes listen with your ears use your voice and move your body mm. and that's what um mine sorry <laughs> that's what mindfulness helps us to do as well doesn't it to to use those different senses to to help us be in that moment and so there's some they're really good strategies and it always comes back to breathing doesn't it It does breathe (laughs) and to know when you are outside of the window zero or below or eight and above you you can't if you're in a panic attack say in a hyper state there's no point in trying to breathe through that you know it's just not going to work you've got to that state's got to pass first so you, you, you're trying to get these movements happening either well, more and more to stay in the window, you know, catch them about seven or at one and breathe to calm down. Yeah, yeah. And anybody who's that support person can help, um, can help the traumatised person to do that. And, you know, these things of Stephen Porges' do work. Yeah, they work well. So if we're in an, a situation like how you were in the car, do you realize you're I mean I know we're going we're running out of time now but do you realize you're in that fight or flight or freeze like is there a way to stay in between the zero and the seven so that you you're keeping your brain going I've done um in those moments um, a lot of breathing put the air conditioning on so it arrests your body and you can feel that cold blast of air 
I get on the phone and talk to somebody if I'm really in a you know bad way. Um, looking at looking out of the window whilst you're focusing on the road is really you know to see see what's happening to to self talk. I do a lot of self talking. This isn't happening now. They're not passing into my lane. That happened years ago. I'm safe. I'm so like talking to your inner child, really. Um, yeah, and and just trying to um, you know maybe think about another safe place that you've been to before, or looking forward to seeing someone at home that you're driving home to. You know, all of these things to try to regulate and take bring you back really into that um, the space where you can process. Mm. I will try that before I do my public speaking. Yes. I need to stay between the, the zero and the seven. I can't afford to be at, it, at the either end. <laughs> and again, using the things that I said of the, 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 the human vagus will help you do that. Mm. It's been yeah. um, such a wonderful talk again, Jane. I'm so appreciative of your time. Um, that you've dedicated to the foundation and helping us to continue to raise awareness around these topics because they're just so important. And um, I just learn so much from you every time I speak to you. So I feel slightly selfish because I feel like I'm having a private tutorial with you. <laughs> but thank you so much. Um, it's just great to be able to talk about these topics. So I hope you have a wonderful evening in New Zealand. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Shay. Take care. All the best. To find out more about Jane and her work, including her co-authored book, Adult Dyslexia, A Guide for Understanding the World of Adult Dyslexics, head to dyslexic.com. Did you know we now have a new live Q&A series called Question Dys, D-Y-S, created during COVID to help our community feel more connected. Each month, I interview a fellow dyslexic about all things dyslexia and life, the Question Dis series is running through Facebook Live. I really hope you can come along and join us for one of these sessions. If you haven't already done so yet, make sure you sign up to our mailing list so you can keep up to date with everything we do at the Foundation. Head to deardyslexic.com. And don't forget, if there is anything you have heard today that was distressing, please call Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. If there is a topic you would like discussed on the show, please email us, admin at dyslexic.com. I hope you've enjoyed today. Bye for now. Oh.